Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems in the world. Climate Capital, across our funds and our syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early-stage climate tech in the world. This episode is being led by Michael and Jenny, the GPs of Climate Capital's BioFund. And today we are interviewing Alan, uh, who is the CEO of California Culture. So, hey, Alan, um, great to have you. And let's start out with you sharing you know, your background briefly, um, and we'll go from there. Hi, everyone. I'm Alan, co-founder of California Culture. A little bit about me is that I've been working in food tech and climate for quite a bit. I started off my career about 20 years ago, working in one of the first cell-cultured meat labs in the U.S., starting in a tiny lab in Bayshore, Long Island. And the only people then that wanted to sort of talk with us was maybe NASA or the <laughs> U.N. talking about the potential applications of cell-cultured meat when it was still considered pure science fiction. Uh, this was really early in its cycle. So very few people knew about it or understood it. And I, I sort of believed in, in that technology eventually is going to be a lot more important, but some very big technical hurdles had to be overcome. And over the last 15 years, quite, quite a bit of them have. So that was sort of the beginning of my journey. I worked in developing different drugs uh, pharmaceutical products. From there, that led me to starting uh, my previous food tech company, Miraculix, now known as Oobly Foods, which commercialized the first new class of sweetener in the last 20 years. Um, I was sort of very obsessed with healthy, more sustainable ingredients for quite a while. And I was a big believer that new classes of ingredients or food are going to be incredibly important, not only for uh, planetary health, but human health. Uh, people's appetites for sweet, for savory, for bitter, these things are never going to change. So might as well make it better for uh, consumers and better for the planet. And that was sort of my uh, my my north stars of of the direction to head to where if if this could if these technologies can impact millions of people uh and improve their lives this is something i definitely want to uh, uh contribute a large part of my life to and these experiences have led me to start california cultured where i'm still continuing uh to develop new technology and new ingredients uh with uh starting with cell culture chocolate and coffee before we get in too much into california culture i just want to ask a couple of questions about you know alan the human being not a lot of people grow up thinking about food science as a career path so how did you get interested in this line of work it's definitely luck of a draw. It, it had to do with a lot of interesting uh, circumstances. Sort of, I always loved science. I always loved technology. I felt that to solve the biggest problems of the world, you're going to need to understand what's going on in not only biology, but on the planet and combine, uh, combine new advances to solve these problems that humans have always had. Uh, and, uh, I tried to sort of focus on, 
on areas that were incredibly difficult. Uh, but if they could be solved, they could have massive outcomes. Uh, so, so that was sort of what, how I was thinking about starting my career. Uh, uh, I always wanted to work in labs. And unfortunately, as many sort of scientists know, uh, many labs require you to have experience to get your foot mm -hmm. in the door. Mm -hmm. One of the only labs, uh, uh, basically in New York, uh, uh, ironically, that was looking for people to come and work was this tiny little lab in Bayshore. Uh, that it took me like an hour and a half to commute to. But uh, one of the most interesting things that drew me to this type of technology and processes is they were working on growing uh, fish as uh, uh, fish cells as food. I never heard about that concept before. And what drew me to that was sort of very fond memories of, of fishing with my dad and sort of seeing, uh, sort of noticing every time you're sort of preparing the fish that just more and more plastic was inside of it and the amount of, of fish in the ocean were decreasing and just just seeing just seeing that from a firsthand experience and just seeing the oceans were getting more and more polluted over time uh, and sort of realizing that's only going to get worse people's desire and demand for high quality protein is only going to go and ingredients and foods are only going to get higher and and more intense and unfortunately all the supplies are going to be more and more under threat as time goes on and that basically led to this idea that you could potentially grow infinite amounts of of fish of meat of chicken of eggs of milk of of, of better ingredients that basically are impossible to create today using biotechnology. And, and that sort of led to me sort of jumping headfirst into this field where uh, you could grow crazy things uh, all starting from your imagination. And, and that's what really led me to sort of devote my life to this. So Alan, can you tell us about the problem you are solving with California culture? Sure. Uh, so humans love chocolate and coffee. Uh, unfortunately, uh, our pursuit of these crops has been very tragic. Uh, it has led to uh, literally countries being clear cut of every single tree uh, in order to plant cocoa trees and coffee trees. Uh, this has also led to almost a global uh, ring of child slavery. Right now, there's right now about one and a half million child slaves involved in these industries. Many of them are forced, which is really, um, really r not only tragic, but this has been a problem that that has never really been addressed. Then comes the diseases that many cocoa and coffee plants are having, which is driving up the prices of them every single year. And, and then the other and other very crucial uh, impact is chocolate has quite a bit of cadmium and lead in it. And uh, unfortunately, just three uh, small ounces of chocolate is, is enough to, uh, 
uh, uh, go higher than the FDA uh, recommended amounts. So there's so many problems from the way it's made to how it's grown and processed to the pollution it's producing, the effects it's producing to what we're to our, our desire, our love for it, uh, unfortunately, is hurting us in, in smaller ways, but there are many issues at play. And you are making coffee and chocolates without the beans. Can you tell us about how you do it in a non-technical way? Sure. So how, how we're basically starting this, instead of growing the entirety of the plant, instead of waiting years uh, for it to mature, or needing large amounts of uh, of people to 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 baby the plant, we're we're growing just the cocoa and coffee bean cells. So that's where all the that's in essence what people uh, want at the end of the day. So we're focused on on growing those. How it works is we put these original beans on to plates that have different plant hormones uh, over thousands of generations. We sort of subdivide these cells and we have different populations that have different properties of growth and flavor. And from those populations, we can grow them in large fermentation tanks and that can produce a, a large liquid culture of these cells and then we can harvest them in roughly uh, a week's time. How is that different from using fermentation to make cheese or beer, for example? So how it works usually in fermentation to make cheese is many companies are focusing on one specific compound or one specific protein. Uh, uh, for instance, in cheese, I know there's a lot of focus on casein uh, as the protein that can allow things to have the right texture and flavor. Whereas with beer, they're fermenting uh, 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 whole grains. And from there, they're focused on getting lots of flavors. So what we're trying to do is get a cell to grow uh, uh, very fast. Uh, whereas we're not necessarily looking for one protein, but we're looking for a whole family of different uh, compounds to be produced at the same time. So it's, it's not necessarily uh, uh, similar to, to fermentation of cheese, uh, but there's some similarities of that. Uh, we would basically say it would be a little bit of, uh, it has a lot of similarities to growing uh, for instance, uh, uh, meat cells, where we're trying to grow uh, the whole complexity of not only flavors and fats at the same time. And then after we do that, we put that into a similar uh, process of beer making. So after we grow the original flavors, the, the fermentation process could break them down into the flavors we know and love. How does the chocolate taste like? coming out of a fermenter? It, it comes out of a, of a gentle, fruity, and, and bitter smell, uh, uh, an acid smell. Uh, that, these are some of the really rich chocolate notes that we get, uh, but uh, a, a very important part of the process to really unlock them is also roasting. So 
from uh, as we first grow the cells, these compounds get made and the original proteins get made. We bring them through fermentation that breaks them down into the flavors of chocolate uh, and others into the flavors of coffee. And the roasting really can can take away the bitter flavors and really enhance the the chocolatey notes and coffee notes that we all know and love. That sounds delicious to me. And you mentioned there are additional health benefits that you can introduce to your products as well, right? By making it through fermentation. So uh, people for a very long time have always heard, you know, dark chocolate's healthier than milk chocolate and why you should always have it. But unfortunately, people didn't really exactly know why. So uh, over the last decade, many of the, the biggest chocolate companies in the world wanted to have that answer as well. They spent oh, basically a very large fortune to understand that uh, in chocolate, uh, there are these compounds called flavanols. They basically are about less than 1% of the mass of chocolate, but they have really profound beneficial effects on not only uh, uh, cardiovascular health, skin health, and brain health. And they've just completed uh, a, a six-year double-blind study showing that these compounds, when they're consumed every single day, if they're purified enough from chocolate, they can uh, uh, reduce the risks of cardiovascular death and disease by over 30%. So these, these results were really profound. And just this past year, the FDA has allowed uh, for some of these potential claims to be used so now we actually have some rock hard science showing that these effects are real and, and they are also coming from these dark chocolate products, which we can actually uh, make incredibly healthy uh, without necessarily altering uh, the taste or profile with, and we could even make them a lot more affordable for people. And this is sort of the, our big dream. So how could we sort of make chocolate a lot more healthy, a lot more affordable, and a lot more sustainable without some of these, these big, big issues that I've been talking about? So consumers who don't like dark chocolate can now enjoy the health benefit of flavanols in milk chocolates and white chocolates. Exactly. That's sort of the trick. Get people to, to, to have their favorite chocolate, but it being sort of sneakily 10 times healthier for them but still tasting the same, if not better. Even more reasons to eat more chocolate. I love exactly. it. Exactly. What's something shocking about the status quo that most people don't know about what you do? Uh, of, how, of how far it has to travel, of how long it takes to make. And it, the process of making chocolate is still, um, is still pretty much similar to how of how it was made uh, thousands of years ago. They still have cocoa plantations uh, that requires very large labor forces. The work is incredibly difficult uh, to even make a little bit of chocolate. And uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, much of the chocolate of the world is disappearing as well. So uh, th these are sort of these, 
these things that people have been exposed to chocolate their whole life. They think, oh, just walk into any store and we can find chocolate. But we're under the the sort of the opinion and and seeing this coming true that chocolate is being attacked from not only many diseases and issues, but we think that chocolate as a species might actually uh, go extinct if if radical action is, isn't taken uh, to preserve it. But we think we can actually hopefully protect the future of chocolate with our technology as well. Chocolates and coffees are often perceived as two very different things, and they're, they're very different. But your company can make both with a single technology platform. Can you tell yes. us how you do it? So the process is, is relatively similar. We're looking for premium uh, coffee and chocolate beans that are really desirable. We grow the cells uh, on plates and eventually bring them into a process called a cell suspension culture. We, we could grow them in large fermentation tanks. Uh, and after we grow them in the large fermentation tanks, we would ferment them for an additional day or two and then roast them. So it's a very uh, similar uh, uh, process, but we're looking for different compounds and proteins that would tell us how they're tasting and how they're going to grow. And that's basically the, the main difference between growing chocolate and coffee cells. And the, the process to scale up is, is basically identical. The, whole, the only difference is what we're looking for in terms of the compounds. But uh, they're usually sold side by side. And, uh, uh, and we, we are, we've become masters of, tr of growing these cocoa cells over the last couple of years. And we saw there was a lot of similarities to coffee since it's also growing in tropical areas and it's under threat uh, for extinction as well. For audience who are listening who would like to try your chocolates or coffee, what's the best way for them to, to find or taste your product? Well, we are uh, giving out some limited samples and sending them out around the world. So uh, if, if there's someone that would love to try our chocolate and want to partner with us to launch products, uh, we'd, we'd love to chat. Uh, we're starting to send out some small samples right now and uh, are looking to significantly ramp up our production this year. Can you share with us how someone who started with lab room meat ended up doing lab room chocolate? Well, the, the underlying concept always fascinated me of, of basically growing infinite amounts of 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 tissue or or anything starting with one single cell and 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 that was this sort of inspirational thought you know everything we eat we wear uh uh can be grown and can be produced through this type of technology and and seeing that once some scientific hurdles are achieved uh you can basically change the entire industry and that is sort of that that key that key secret 
of, of biotech, which is uh, you can grow infinite amounts of product once you have, once you develop this process and you're, and you could do it for anything. Uh, so the thought process is why not do this uh, to the products that are not only disappearing, uh, require tons of labor, tons of land, and uh, we think are also recession proof. And even in the next like 100 years or 200 years, I would make a bet that uh, the demand for chocolate and coffee is only going to go up. So uh, we don't think it's going to be uh, easy to grow chocolate or coffee in space or in Mars or, or on different planets. So uh, we basically think the best and most economical way and the most we think inevitable way of most of the foods and materials that the world's going to be eating, consuming, and wearing are going to be grown in, in basically these giant facilities where you can have it more sustainable, better for you, and better for the planet. So uh, I thought if no one else is going to do it, I'm, I'm going to have to step up to the plate. And that sort of motivated me to, to sort of start the company. And you know, some people I think are more familiar with the idea of cultivated meat than they are with kind of cell cultivated plant cells. Um, can you just kind of illuminate to pe uh, for people what's whether or not the plant cell cultivation process is easier or harder or just different um, and the kind of relative state of affairs there? Yeah, when it comes with uh, working with mammalian cells or, or meat cells, um, traditionally from, from either chickens or pigs or cows, they're relatively difficult to work with. Um, they're, they're very delicate. They need very specialized environments. Uh, you need to have uh, almost a, a pharmaceutical level of cleanliness in every step of the process. Um, to grow, to, to basically grow meat cells. Uh, and uh, it, it's quite different when it comes with plant cells. Uh, the, the thing with plants is they're a lot more hardy. Uh, they could grow in a lot more different temperatures and, and environments. Uh, you could grow them literally many, many amateur uh, biologists and plant biologists uh, can do a lot of great work just with tools you find in your grocery store in your kitchen and many uh, uh, many experience on plant cell culture can happen literally in your kitchen or 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 bedroom if you just have some some uh, a relatively small clean space so the the level of cleanliness and and complexity is a lot more different from plant cell culture. It's a lot more uh, easier to achieve uh, and do. Uh, you can literally go to your local supermarket, probably get some 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 basic vitamins, coconut water, a little bit of sugar, and your favorite plants, and probably like do some basic plant cell culture um, <laughs> with some kitchen ingredients. And you could actually grow it, and and maybe even grow some some newer newer baby cells, and and it's been around for quite a long time. So uh, people have been very accustomed to this type of work. 
So we we see it, it it was a lot more approachable, not only from from a scientific perspective, that we're able to achieve uh, uh, some 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 significant advancements without necessarily needing hundreds of millions of dollars. And we've been able to, to show that we could produce chocolate using these basically off-the-shelf ingredients. And in essence, we want to basically show the world that this is just uh, as similar or as beer brewing uh, and, uh, and many people could even do it. So you, if, if, it can, if, if, if many people at home could see themselves just working with some plant cells, we think it's a much easier step for, for them wanting to buy it and use these products as well. I'd love to hear the origin story. Like, how did you meet your co-founder? Who is that person? And how did you decide that this was the company you were going to build together? Yeah, so I have two co-founders. Uh, uh, I have uh, my scientific co-founder is Harrison Yoon. And my other financial co-founder is Deborah Newman. So I, I was friends with uh, Deborah for a very long time and, uh, uh, and uh, known from her background in both business development and tax accounting that she would have a lot of great uh, uh, abilities to help us figure out the complexities of, of finding uh, every cent possible to sort of not only build this company and figure out our next steps, but helping us with business planning uh, and Harrison, I brought him up, uh, 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 brought him aboard. Uh, he's worked in plant cell culture for about 30 years. Uh, and I've, uh, uh, sort of, uh, met him, uh, through my previous company. He was working for a company in Davis, California, and I saw him and I wanted to potentially bring him aboard. Uh, it's, uh, it didn't necessarily work out then, but we, uh, stayed in contact. And as I was sort of starting the beginnings of this company, I reached out to him to sort of, uh, uh chat with him about it. And he was explaining that, uh, uh, that he had all these, uh, interesting technologies and in plant cell culture that were never, uh, uh that were never explored. And we, we were working together for a couple of weeks to sort of put together a plan to, to build the company. And with me, with me uh, Deborah and, and Harry, we managed to sort of figure out a really unique business plan and, tech and, and process uh, for us to scale up this type of technology. And uh, we've been working really hard over the last three years uh, through COVID and uh, working remotely to, to sort of build this company. We've been very, very happy uh, in under three years that we've managed to go from concept to build a team of right now close to 20, uh, have a couple of patents and managed to produce really amazing chocolate uh, in a relatively short amount of time. So, uh, that's sort of a little bit of the origin story. Beautiful. When you um, answered Jenny's question about where people can find your chocolate, you said you know, you're giving out samples, you're looking for partners. That kind of implies that you all are going a B2B, 
route rather than a direct to consumer route with your business. Am I hearing that right? And, and if so, why did you choose to set yourselves up that way? Sure. Uh, there's a, a couple of very good reasons. Uh, we basically, when we started this company, we were uh, figuring out, should we focus specifically on consumers or B2B or both or what the status of this is? We saw that there were going to be some scientific big milestones that we have to hit in order to make this technology commercially viable and scalable. We're going to need some significant resources in order to scale this up. And we saw the best way of potentially doing this was to work with some larger partners who who sort of see the bigger problems of the chocolate and coffee industry and are motivated to use their own facilities and resources to help companies such as ours sort of figure out how to rebuild this industry. So, so sort of understanding what we had to do and sort of the resources available sort of guided us into this B2B direction. Uh, uh, there, we've also seen that many chocolate companies are starting to get incredibly fearful that there's just not going to be a big enough supply. And we saw this as a great opportunity to not only help them lower their carbon emissions, but also to create dozens of new chocolate products and to reach consumers and they would be, uh, and the chocolate companies could help us scale with their own capacity, help us enter new markets, as well as navigate uh, complex regulatory questions. So they've been working with different regulatory agencies all over the world Mm. and Mm. figuring Mm. out distribution and marketing. And we felt that that wasn't necessarily our our bread and butter, but we can do all the scientific work, uh, make amazing tasting chocolate and figure out how to get the cost low enough and that was sort of our our secret sauce. And with the these B2B companies, they could help us the rest of the way. I think the the big criticism I hear of cell cultured meat or you know products in general is that investors worry they are very difficult to scale. You know, maybe in brief, um, without getting too much into technical details. How do you think about scaling, and is that something that you guys see as a, a big challenge? Um, and if if so, is it one that's solved or unsolved? <laughs> For plant cell culture, it's been solved, uh, but very few people really know about it because it was only uh, solved for the pharmaceutical industry, mm. which is ironically the most expensive way of doing it. So we've already seen. A uh, hundred thousand liter systems in continuous operation for many years for plant cell culture technology. So we saw that this was able to be scaled to massive industrial levels, whereas the 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 largest level that we've heard about for cell cultured meat has only reached maybe about. 
20,000 liters. So we see there's, there's quite a bit of advancements of plant cell culture, even though uh, it's not that well known. So we're relying on, on some experts within these uh, specific fields that are, uh, that are right now guiding us to some of these facilities. And we're going to be running, we're very excited, our first large industrial tests for our first regulatory approval this coming up quarter. Kind of switching gears a little bit, Alan. You know, startups are famously one of the more difficult things you can choose to do uh, with your professional life. What has been hardest about the journey of being a founder and a CEO for you? Well, it's every company, uh, the CEO has to focus on different things uh, and different projects. But there are some similarities. Uh, it's it's finding and 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 working with great people, which which we basically uh, 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 think is is the cornerstone of building any important company. Uh, but understanding uh, which technologies to focus on, where to put resources, is incredibly difficult because. Uh, uh, as, as any CEO would tell you, oh, I wish I knew now when I started and it would have definitely changed quite, quite a bit of, of uh, the way that we've approached building of, of where do you put resources in the beginning? Where do you see yourselves uh, uh, being successful? Where do you have problems? Many times people can't, can't tell, uh, but the most important thing is having a really important base of good, trustworthy people that you want to work with for a very long time. And when it comes down to finding people, uh, there there were two things. There was number one of like skill sets and number two of like a good person that is able to figure things out. And I've learned as a CEO, it's very important to have people who are able to, to figure things out because the vast majority of the problems were never really seen before or or not it or never really thought about that in that way and until it smacks you in the face so uh <laughs> it's always finding the right people with the right mixture of uh of uh experiences can you tell us a story of of a problem that smacked you guys in the in the face and uh how you how you kind of overcame yeah it's uh one of one of uh, our problems is we were sort of looking for a a specific plastic system that we were looking to use, and uh, uh, unfortunately, we were going into to to lots of roadblocks, and uh, we basically ran into someone um, from the bottling industry uh, uh, that that uh, ironically had had an answer for us. Uh, from the bioreactor uh, hmm. coming in from, from the bioreactor direction. So uh, uh, this person basically uh, helped us come up with a brand new way of thinking about how to produce our, our reactors and technology. And this put us on, on a much faster path to scale. Uh, and, and so it was just coming up with uh, out-of-the-box solutions to 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 some to some uh, difficult problems have 
have always been surprising to us. What, if anything, do you feel like you learn from a process like that? It's that there are always answers to solutions. It's, it's just spending quite a bit of time or, or reaching out to enough people until, until you could uh, glean an answer from them. Certainly this, this idea of like grit and persistence is, is something that never stops to be, stops being important in the entrepreneurial process, no matter what you do, I think. Exactly. Is there anything that is kind of controversial about the work that you do um, that, you know, we should touch on or address? Yeah. I don't know if, if you'd be happy, if you would be able to walk us through anything like that. Yeah. So uh, I always get the question, you know, what's going to happen to these farmers that are growing chocolate, that are growing coffee, um, and what's going to happen to their lives and livelihood. Uh, the matter of the fact is many of their lives are, are very, very um, hard and difficult. And uh, unfortunately, these industries are very uh, destructive and uh, exploitative. Uh, Many of the coffee farmers today that have been growing coffee for even generations just can't grow grow it anymore. Many of them were forced to move their farms uh, literally uh, from the bottoms of valleys to the tops of mountains uh, over the last 30 years. And what's happened is all their crops have been failing. And this has sort of led to a giant this of of thousands of coffee farmers from all over South America. Uh, guess where they're heading? They're heading north for uh, to the border. They're heading. They're looking for more economic opportunities. Uh, and what's happening in Africa? Uh, it's unfortunately many farmers uh, are using child slaves, and there are thousands of farms like that. And uh, I'm. At the end of the day, uh, we just we see sort of the horrible conditions that some of these child slaves go through, and our our sort of our, our sort of uh, controversy or statement is, you know, if they're using child slaves, you know, uh, we we don't think that these farms should exist. You know, there was you know humanity for a very long time has used you know, forced labor to grow food for such a long time. But I, I think it's it's come to the time that there should not be any child slavery or forced labor on any of the crops, you know, or commodities we have. And I think we have the technology to, to liberate ourselves from all of this stuff. Literally ancient technology of a grindstone liberated millions of man hours of grinding wheat and, and, and other grains and this is just another step of 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 not needing millions and billions of wasted hours uh uh just growing foods or other materials we could just have robots doing it from uh, robots growing it robots harvesting and we could focus on 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 bigger things uh and that's sort of our own controversial take on it <laughs> how does the world change if you succeed can you paint that picture for us yeah um our focus is to have a better way of producing chocolate that uh you can make 
um, basically this uh, uh, make the the need for forced labor in chocolate undesirable. Uh, the the goal is to uh, uh, completely uh, remove all child uh, workers from the chocolate industry. Uh, the goal is to have production of chocolate and coffee uh, uh, domestically in 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 where people eat them in the U.S., in Asia, in Europe, in South America, other places really close to where consumers would would live so the amount of pollution being generated uh falls to a much 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 smaller amount than it currently is i think for every kilo of chocolate right now it produces 20 kilos of pollution um we we know we could bring that down to a fraction of where it is today uh instead of necessarily uh growing chocolate and coffee around the world you could grow amazing chocolate and coffee sustainably and locally uh, and have a better end product as well. So we, we see the world getting a lot of their, their foods a lot more closer, grown domestically, potentially even in state rather than being shipped all around the world and being done a lot more sustainably. Um, and we, we think that these tools are possible and, and right now we're showing the world we can make it happen. And what has been the most helpful advice you receive as a founder? Move fast and push people. These are probably the two most important things that any founder could do because every single minute costs uh, money and opportunities are also generated every minute. So where should the founder work? Where should you focus the company on? What is the most important goal to achieve uh, as quick as possible? And the second thing is people by nature want to be comfortable. And the, the, the point of a startup is, is, is being comfortable with being uncomfortable. So every single day is, 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 sort of say, is, is sort of trying to figure out how to push things forward, how to get things done faster, how to, how to make sure that you have extra backup plans just in case. Because as, 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 as uh, Mike Tyson said, like uh, uh, all plans uh, uh, usually come in contact with reality and everything changes super quick. So we always have to come up with multiple plans. And the point, uh, the point of it, you have to be uncomfortable and, and think about these things now rather than being punched in the face and coming up with it on the fly. So uh, uh, moving fast and, 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 and pushing uh, is, is probably the two most important pieces that any founder should sort of always focus on. Thank you to everybody for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about our conversation or to get involved with the work that Climate Capital is doing, you can check out our website, climatecapital.co. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.